4: Love Talk Radio.
5: Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files. Uh, uh, we're waiting for Professor Will Riley will be joining us later today, uh, hopefully. Uh, so we'll be waiting for him to call in and talk about his latest research he's been doing uh, on behalf of the America's Majority Foundation, which I am the project director and also a research associate. In addition, I'm the chairman of America's Pact and. I'm the author of eight books, all of them great. None of them bestsellers, but they all should be, including the rise of national populism and democratic socialism, which, by the way, you can get on posthillpress.com or Amazon.com. So, yeah. So I, I tell you what. But before we do, I mean, like I say, like I say, wait. You know, as soon as you know, grill comes on, you know, we'll get right into it. But every so often. You know, I like I said, I am a member of the Boxing Writers Association of America, and we had, like I say, there was a very intriguing fight in, this weekend between Lopez and Lomachenko. Lomachenko, and Lomachenko was the favorite. He was like the, uh, and this was for like the unification of all the lightweight titles. So this was like, uh, you know, winner take all type of a fight, which. Rarely happens in boxing anymore. With all the different titles available, so everybody put up all of their titles. The winner walked away with four titles. And so, yeah. So basically, so what I wanted to do here, and, and what I wanted to kind of oops. so don't go. What I wanted to, so I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to kind of briefly, briefly, kind of. Talk about this fight in this regard, because ever so often, boxing is one of those sports. It's one on one. It's one on one, and you can't really hide. This is not like a okay, case. Not like a team sport. If let's say you, uh, if you miss an assignment, it may or may not be obvious. Because if you miss an assignment, in boxing, you know it. You end up on the floor, and. And sometimes fights don't always turn out the way you think they're going to be. Lopez was going to be the aggressor. He was the bigger fighter, bigger knockout puncher. First six, seven rounds, boxing, moving, not getting in the wheelhouse of Lomachenko. And Lomachenko, who is a very good counter puncher, found himself in a position where he had to be the aggressor. But it took him seven rounds. To figure out, okay, what do I need to do to get the inside of this guy who's bigger than me? He's got a reach longer reach than I do. So the first seven or eight, seven rounds were tactical, which basically means for non-boxing fans, boring, because you had you know basically you know low pass with most of the punches, but it wasn't like you know I'm reminded of the old Roger you know uh, Rodney Dangerfield line that he uses uh, basically. Uh yeah, you know, went to a hockey match you know, we went to a boxing match and a hockey game turn you know, showed up. But uh and so and so basically and so this so in the eighth to eleventh round, Lomachenko got on the inside and he started to pound the body, pound the head, unleash those combinations that he's noted for. He put uh, Lopez on the defensive and even to a point where the question came into play is you know, you know, and again, you know, I thought the fight was close. I thought the, the final round would be the deciding round. And ever so often in boxing, you get that moment where a fighter becomes a champion, shows that championship heart. And Lopez, we got the fight in the bag, win, you know, just stay a But Lopez decided not to do that. He decided... I'm going to push this guy around. I'm going to go out on my shield. I'm going to win this fight. And he assumed, and I'm not going to leave it in the hands of the judges. So it was an exciting 12th round. Both of these fighters giving, but Lopez getting the benefit of the doubt. After basically losing four rounds in a row, looking like he's exhausted, looking like Lil Machinko is starting to get the better of him, he comes back with a great 12th round and won the fight. I actually had the fight really won because the judges were not watching the same fight I was, and what most of us at ringside were watching, but because they had a lot farther along than I did. One had 10 rounds to one for Lopez,
0: one had nine
5: rounds to three, one had eight four rounds to four. I had a seven to five, but talking to most of the people that I know and, uh, you know, in the boxing game, and they kind of agree with me. It was a very close fight. So, but. I, but like I said, I love boxing, and I love boxing because it's one of those sports, it's one-on-one. You cannot hide in the ring. You cannot hide in the ring. Unlike, let's say, baseball football, or basketball, where you can take a playoff and make, nobody's going to notice it, uh, you can make a mistake and some instead of a five-yard gain, you end up with a two-yard gain because you didn't do your assignment properly. In boxing, you miss an assignment, you end up on the floor. It's a price to be paid. All right, now on the line with me is my good friend Will Riley. Again, uh, for disclosure, Mr. Professor Riley uh, uh, has done research for America's Majority Foundation along with others, uh, other organizations, and I know he does a lot of consulting jobs. <laughs> As well, but we're going to talk about lockdowns. We're going to talk about uh, science. We're going to talk about the politicization of science and you know, where we go from here and where we go from here from COVID. And so I wanted to, first of all, introduce uh, once again to this audience uh, Will Riley. Professor Riley, how are you doing, sir?
3: Uh, doing really well, Tom. As always, good to be on the show.
5: All right. Well, here's, yeah, you know, like I say, you know, I wanted to bring you on because obviously you're finishing up a research project for us, and you know, because we already talked about the first part of you know, lockdown versus non-lockdown states, and you, you know, you were gracious enough to do a economic analysis, which we will get more into. But here's a question I'm going to throw back to you because here's something that I am concerned about. Is okay? Twitter, Twitter, pretty much censored Scott Atlas. All by saying his, you know, I mean, they basically censored him and basically said, he, you know, obviously the information he presented is totally wrong. Uh, you know, and they also, in my view, misinterpreted exactly what he stated. But the irony is, he was making some sound points on the use of a mask, its limitation, where, it's, where one should do it. And he never said anywhere, don't wear a mask. He basically said, here's what the science is telling us. And he let, it let out references. And 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 by and, and yet he got censored, even though scientifically speaking, there are a lot of scientists out there who would agree with his position, and some can even go to the you know CDC in the past and get to get the information he provided. The concerns going to be, is are we at that point of politicalization of science? If that we if science is now becoming politicized, and certainly as a researcher yourself. And you've delved in your share of controversial areas. You know, is this something to be feared in the future where, let's say, researchers are going to be put themselves in a position of, if it's not the conventional wisdom,
6: mm-hmm.
5: you're going to, you know, you, you're going to end up being censored and we're not going to have that needed scientific debate.
3: Yeah, I think – well, first of all, one thing that people are fond of saying in the modern American conversation is I believe in the science, and I think this is something you hear especially on the left, and this has often been used not always illegitimately as a weapon against the right. I mean if you remember the debates about – creationism and intelligent design in the late 1990s, it often was people on the left saying, look, you know, I'm of Catholic background as well, but the world's not five or 6,000 years old, and that's probably true. I mean, I, I would say in my belief that's definitely true. But now... We're seeing the picture flipped a little bit because people, when it comes to a whole bunch of things like transgenderism or COVID-19, are again trying to do this same routine. And again, mostly from the left, I believe in the science. But things today are a little more complicated. I mean, there's a great deal of science on all sides of a serious debate of what should be a nonpartisan debate like the conversation around COVID-19. So, I mean, if you want to talk science, for example, I mean, it's the science that tells us that the average COVID victim is 82. So a reasonable national policy would probably be the protection of seniors rather than these broad, very encompassing lockdowns, or for that matter, rather than shutting down you know, nightclubs for healthy young people. Um, it's the science that tells us that there are masks that really do work well that you might want to consider buying for a senior relative, like N95s. But that the masking up most people do probably isn't doing anything. I mean, from a medical perspective, imagine what you would think if a doctor took a mask out of the back pocket of his pants where it had been for three days and put it on. That's what the ordinary person is doing if they're told to comply with mask requirements. So all of that is the science as well. And I mean, I think some science that a lot of people would be fairly unenthusiastic about is the – the short report we just put together, which looks at the correlation between lockdowns and unemployment, and we don't necessarily find lockdowns kill people or anything like that. There's evidence on both sides, but you do find that they kill jobs, that if you shut down entire shopping malls, fewer people have work. So that is also science. A leader should look at that as well as raw case numbers.
5: Okay, hold on to a thought. This is Tom Donaldson with my good friend Will Riley here on the Donaldson Files. We'll be right back uh, on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
7: If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into The Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed.
5: And also, don't forget Locker Talk with Barry Bondsbury when you hear about the NFL stars of tomorrow. Today, listen to Barry every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at blocktalkradio.com slash LA-Bachelor. And the podcast every day, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with back-to-back episodes at thebachelordews.airtime.pro. Interested in having your own show or advertising? Email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And don't forget, on this show, uh, you can listen to repeats of tonight's show, other great shows, 3 a.m., 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, midnight, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Bachelor News, airtime.pro. And tonight, to be part of this show, you call in 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130 three zero all right and, and oh and just a real quick note here ladies and gentlemen you know if, uh i just want to kind of give you an update on coco uh last week she had just a fever uh, all kinds of pains it turned out she was passing a kidney stone and that kidney stone has now turned into a urinary tract infection but she hopes to be joining us tomorrow night
6: uh
5: so but just wanted to kind of update you. Uh, she's had a kind of a rough year. Everything from having COVID to uh, various other ailments, and now she's passing kidney stones and a urinary tract infection to go on top of that. So I just want to let you know that she will. You know, she does mention that she's going to hopefully be back tomorrow. Okay, back to our discussion here. Okay, yeah, uh, Doctor Wright. I mean, the point. Yeah, you kind of make a good point. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, you know there's studies we're going to, and we're going to delve more into it, but I mean, mm-hmm. there's a point to me where data has got to be more has got to be important. But in order to get you know what data is correct, because literally, you know, there's a lot of issues where you could literally have both sides where you got good scientific arguments what to do, what not to do. COVID is one of those things where you know where do you go from point A to point B, you know, and what's the you know because you know, in my view, yeah, you know, you know, again, to me, data is being driven. But you go look at Europe. Ireland is getting ready to, sh- you know, if they they're shutting down completely. Great Britain is is starting to shut down. Uh, there was a story about Wales. Uh, Wales is basically shutting. You know, it's almost even stricter than the rest of of Great Britain. And it's almost, in my view, we're repeating the same mistakes. And I wanted to kind of go over the, da- the data because, like I say, we pre- you know you've done both. You know, data looking at the number of cases, number of deaths, lockdown versus non-lockdown. I mean, your conclusion then was there was no evidence suggesting you were a, there were less people dying as a result of what, I mean, we did not save lives with the lockdown, and you certainly didn't present any, the number of cases were pretty much similar. Uh, so it wasn't like you, you basically, from a site, you know, that you, A, reduced cases and reduced death. And now we're going to go on to the unemployment side. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I I personally am fairly strongly anti-lockdown, and I don't, I don't even know if you'd call that a scientific perspective. I'm in what you could call a leadership position, as you often have been. I mean, I'm the ombudsman for a major university. I'm considering a run for mayor in the decent-sized city I live in. So decisions that I make would have to be based around a number of considerations other than just raw medicine. Uh, It might not, in my opinion, make sense to shut down a city of 100,000 people to save six lives, as tough as that, that consideration may be to make in practice you know, as much personal and spiritual advice as you'd want to get before you make that decision. But I I don't really see much evidence that the lockdowns in general have done a great deal of good because they are what you call non-total lockdowns. So during lockdown, I mean, the average person spent two or three hours uh, outdoors exercising. As many people lost weight as gained it. And this was often in packed public parks and so on. People went shopping as often as possible to ease the monotony. So, I mean, we've all seen the lines at Walmart and Home Depot and so on down the line. Uh, Many people simply ignored the rules. If you look at the heartland U.S. states or the English Midlands. So, in fact, there's a very weak correlation, if a correlation at all, between lockdowns and case numbers. I mean, I wrote a piece about this for Spiked um, that's currently in the process of submission to a medical journal And what I found is that the nine U.S. states that really never locked down, I mean, sizable states like Arkansas and Utah, on average, have lower COVID case numbers and lower COVID death numbers than comparable states that did lock down. And this, again, gets back to the very specific nature of C-19, of COVID-19. I mean, again, the average victim of COVID-19 is 82 years old. The majority of cases, this began as 42% when FreeOps started that famous series of articles, it's now up, I believe, 51%, come out of nursing homes or hospices. So I understand that it's difficult to isolate and protect the vulnerable, but that still, in my opinion, should be the goal of a COVID policy. It really makes no sense whatsoever to protect high school students or even myself from the disease as kind of the cornerstone of that policy. And it seems to me that we've shut down a massive number of sectors of society that don't logically need to be shut down. I mean, nightclubs catering to young, healthy individuals, athletic fields and facilities. I mean, I believe the WAC major athletic conference is still out for this football season, the Pac-12 maybe. Uh, and uh, don't want to ramble on about this, but grade school, so on down the line, there seems to be very little correlation between that pattern of response and who's actually dying of COVID. Um, and I think that there's evidence of this in Europe, provided by a number of countries like Sweden, Belarus, Japan, over kind of that borderline with Asia, but certainly a Western state, that never shut down at all and that don't have – a particularly large number of deaths. I mean Japan went with a test and trace strategy, they've got under 1000. Sweden has 5 or 6000, which is considered a high rate of deaths, but recall that there are 12 to 15 million people in Sweden, the place is as large as California in the land area. So it, it's very hard to convince me that you should shut down that G30 level Swedish economy imprison everyone in their home for 6 months to save perhaps a thousand individuals. And the lessons, but the horrifying background of this is that all people are going to die. There are very famous speeches about this in the Bible and the Lord of the Rings and so on, the doom of men. So, in a typical year in the USA, we have 3.1 million overall deaths. When people say 200,000 people have died this year, no, that's the number of people that have died from COVID-19 or more specifically with COVID-19, but our actual death rate is only up seven or 8%. COVID-19 is going to be the fourth leading cause of death this year. So I think it's important to, to take that process and treat it seriously, but not just descend into panic and shutter the kindergartens.
5: Okay. Let me, let's go back to, let's start with the unemployment numbers that you came up with mm-hmm. and uh and he also did a separate study on bankruptcies as well, uh, which he didn't include in this study, but certainly we can add those numbers as well. But kind of give us a feel, if somebody if I'm a public official in the state let's just say in the state of Kentucky, and I'll say, Okay, uh Professor, what's your view on the impact on the economic side of the equation?
3: Well, lockdowns obviously Lockdowns correlate with, if not cause, unemployment. I mean, I I think this was something fairly unsurprising where you wanted, you know, a solid methodologist to look at it, look at the work that had been done. But I mean, yeah, I find that there's a direct correlation between locking down and an extremely high unemployment rate. And I mean, it, this correlation would be even higher, except for the fact that you and I, you know, ethically did a pretty strict model. And we also put red state, blue state in there. And that, that also, there's a difference. I mean, so if you look at April, when the impact of COVID really hit, the average unemployment in a blue state was around 16%. For a red state, it was 13.2%. Uh, then if you go to the next bar of the graph, the average unemployment for a lockdown state was 15%. Non-lockdown state was around 10%. I mean, those are enormous gaps. Um if you do what I call a complex lockdown scale, because I use a couple of different methods, tricks in this article, um, you know, the average for states that are a zero, never locked down, didn't do much other than require a mask, protect seniors unemployment's 10 percent. Uh, average for states that did the maximum amount uh, in terms of response, shuttering stores and so on, 16 uh, percent. And th- this just went on throughout the following month. So those figures I gave were for April. May, very similar. I mean, lockdown states, uh, 13.1%, non-lockdown states, 9.6%. June, you know, lockdown states, almost 11%, non-lockdown states, 7.2%. Jump to August, uh, lockdown states, 8.2%, non-lockdown, 5.5%. So those are larger gaps than you find between men and women or blacks and whites. I mean, there's, there's not really much that's ambiguous there. I mean, if you close half the businesses in your state, there'll be a lot of people out of work.
5: Yeah, here's the thing, because I, and I have to say, yeah, you know, I want people to understand you know, one of the things that when we, we started this study, because, uh, you know, because I keep a running tab on a weekly basis of unemployment, on a, you know, comparing unemployment, I also do unemployment claims, you know, what is the status of unemployment claims, they're going up, they're going down, and also what's the percentage of the working population, then I did total deaths, and then I did deaths by capital. And but I wanted—I you know, brought, I brought you in for a simple reason because I was coming up with numbers. I said, "Okay, I wonder what would happen if I had a social science like yourself look at the same data, put in the barrel, you know, try to make an apple-to-apple apple comparison. You know, where would we end up being? And interesting enough, on the unemployment side, you were not that far off of what I was seeing.
3: Oh. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, so what we found was a slight, we'd call it statistically uh, insignificant, but real impact of lockdowns on bankruptcy. That probably just means a lot of people haven't closed their doors yet. And then we find that statistically significant impact of lockdowns on unemployment. And when you mentioned some of the secondary death numbers, I don't think either of us has explored that in greater detail. But yeah, lockdowns the Thomas Sowell, who's as close to a guiding light as I, as a grown man, have in social science, once said that it's very important for a leader to remember that there aren't any solutions, there are only trade-offs. Um, so his example of this, he describes that terrible death in the late 80s or early 90s where a baby was flung across a passenger plane, head literally smashed in, and – The airlines, in response, I don't even think the government pressured them to do a lot of this, but took all these steps to make flying safer, mandatory belt, seat for your kid, can't have an animal in the cabin anymore. And Seoul, I think, was the first person to look in the second edition of Basic Economics at the impact that had on flying. And he found that for about four years, it dropped the number of people on the airlines by, let's say, 8 percent, by a pretty sizable amount. All those people drove to get to their destinations instead. And that killed, by his estimate, 2,000 people. So they saved probably two or three kids going forward, but at the cost of everyone you know, burned alive in a wreck. And it's, it's really the same thing here. When you lock down and you shutter the number of small businesses that we previously discovered and discussed, or when you cause a lot of hardworking people, when you think about the field's hardest hit, like construction, to be out of work for months, you're not just having an economic impact. You're causing X number of deaths from drug overdoses, binge drinking, using alcohol, domestic violence, men beating women, women stabbing men. All of this is a direct result of taking the working class half of your population and taking their jobs away. Yeah. So it's simply glib to say, well, not one, I forget which governor it was, probably Whitmer, but you know, not one senior life with her fist in the air. Um, that That's almost meaningless. There will be a number of senior lives lost because of elder abuse and things like that that relate directly to this.
5: Yeah. Well, hold on to that. This is Tom Donson with uh, uh, Professor Will Riley uh, here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor
7: News Radio Network
5: This is Tom Donaldson. Welcome once again to the Donaldson Files. You can listen to this show or call in with a comment by doing the following. Call in 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. Also, you can uh, go on Twitter. I'm at the Donaldson Files on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, and don't forget 3 a.m., to 10 a.m. every day on the, the Pro. you can listen to this show as well, and so again, let me repeat that, the Pro. 3 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern Time, midnight, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, and and now we're back to again. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Riley. I know you got a pretty busy schedule, and I appreciate you taking your time and joining us. Here's let me throw this out to you because this, to me, was one of the things that when I started this, you know, and had and looked at these numbers, you know, first of all, number one, oftentimes when you look at past pandemic, I'm thinking 1957, 1968, you go back to the 1918, 1920 Spanish flu pandemic. It's hard to sit back and just you know distinguish between bad government policies, you know which is which. Uh, in you know in 1918, 1920, you basically had the following happening: the Federal Reserve entering its first decade overshot the money supply, inflation. You also had extensive government control through the various uh, control boards that they had going through in World War One that were not. You know they were kept in place. You had a high marginal tax rate, and then you had a pandemic that was basically killing two out of every 100 people. Uh, and I was looking at the 1957-58 pandemic, and again, it's hard to sit back and figure it because in the 1950s, you know, as I interpret economic data at the time, you know, the biggest use was monetary policy to keep prosperity going because you had a high marginal tax rate. But you didn't have a lot – basically had a you know, kind of – I won't say shut down the government spending, but you did have balanced budgets in the 1950s and restraint in spending. And you did not necessarily have a you – know, other than the highway system being built Any expansion of government, you know, government at that time. But I was looking at the numbers, and I said, okay, there was 4% in 1957 was the low point. Or 3.5 percent was the low point. It went up to 7.5 percent in June of 1958 during the pandemic. So basically, you could see a rise in unemployment, you know, during the winter, the, the fall months, the winter months, as well as early spring throughout the economy before it shifted back to six percent. Thought to myself, you know, what would be the I, you know, where should we truly be unemployment-wise? Versus where we ended up, which is right now 7.9%, which I guess you can say coming down from 14.4%, 14% plus in April, that's a pretty good accomplishment. But still, it's fairly much higher than what we have seen in past, even in past recessions, which started at 14.4%. And here we are at 79 And my theory is very simple, and I'll you know, try to get your views on this, is I still say we're artificially far too high for where we should be versus where we're at. Your thoughts?
3: Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, I don't think that the United States has done an extraordinarily bad job in response to COVID-19. I mean, this is something you're hearing a lot, um, in particular from the left and the very hard right directed at kind of a center-right president during a political election year. We're number one in COVID cases We're number one in COVID cases, and I'll I'll answer specifically your question literally inside a minute, but we're number one in COVID cases because we're the largest of the countries that's telling the truth and keeping good records. That's one of those things like saying Sweden is number one in the world in rapes. They had that unfortunate distinction a couple of years ago. No, they weren't. They were just the largest of the countries dealing with clashes between sort of native Caucasian population and immigrants, party scene, culture, so on, that was keeping honest data on that particular crime at that particular time. And unfortunately, that put them in an unpleasant place to be in. But similarly for the USA, if you go to a website like Worldometer's Coronavirus and you click the adjustment bars both you and I have uh, that takes you to deaths per million I believe we're 12th in the world. If you then adjust for testing, because, I mean, obviously in India, Brazil, Russia, the countries that are right behind us, there's a much lower rate of testing. So, I mean, you don't necessarily know ethically whether an excess death is a COVID death. If you do that, the one time I checked this out, we fell to 47. So I don't think that our leadership, whether you're talking about Trump or even his democratic rivals has been disastrous and there aren't bodies in the streets or anything like that. Um, If there were, at least on a regular basis, rest assured, you would see them leading every single television newscast. Uh, Now, in terms of fiscal policy, there are really two state responses. One is, as I just said, dealing directly with COVID itself. Do we have enough ventilators? And the other is how you handle fiscal and monetary and unemployment policy to, and you just outlined this quite well, but to deal with the impacts of the disease. I think we've done okay. I mean, we've had two coherent bipartisan stimulus bills. But I'll tell you, I mean, I think that the best simple response to COVID's impact on unemployment would be to lift lockdowns. I mean, you know, to make damn sure seniors are protected, then lift the lockdown, and unemployment goes back to 4%. So any, any of these governors like Gavin Newsom that are keeping their state shuttered, that's why unemployment's so high.
5: Yeah, here's the interesting point, because I'm going to follow up on that, because here's, you know, when I looked at, you know, I had... Uh, let me kind of put it this way. Here's what I, I went by unemployment state, and I and I looked at – the first I looked at the top 10 with the lowest unemployment. They averaged 4.9 percent, the top 10. If you go to the top 25, the average – it was like 5.9 percent. In August, 34 out of 50 states were under the national average. So you – and, and they averaged about 6.5 percent. Or six point three. So I mean you look at the you know you got thirty-four states under the national average, averaging by six point three percent. You look at you know top twenty five, they're under uh six you know, they're under six percent. You look at the bottom ten, and that average is eleven point seven percent. Well, guess what states are included in that?
0: New Jersey,
5: <clears throat> Illinois, Pennsylvania. You know those five states alone make over a hundred million population. that's like a third of your population looking at yep. an unemployment rate of eleven percent and so it, and that's what i when i uh, I'm looking at this number I say well we were you know if we were at five and a half to six percent, because the number you came up with the lockdown is the lockdown you know, the non lockdown states were like five point five percent Yep. uh you look at those numbers and you say to yourself, well, you know, at 5.5%, it's not 3.5% it was two months ago, but you're still talking about millions of more people working and maybe uh, 200, 300,000 people not needing unemployment claims. So, I mean, it's... And, and Mike, my, and my, go ahead.
3: Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think that the, the questions are solid. Yeah, obviously, th- and this gets back to the root thing. And I think it's good we're both emphasizing this because this is something that's not said a lot in mainstream media. But yeah, the primary cause of mass unemployment in a lot of these states is COVID-19 lockdowns. So we keep hearing this language that tries to distance the public policy from the disease with people you know, standing in front of a building that's backlit in the color green saying, we must fight this COVID enemy that's keeping us from work. But the simple fact is, it's not COVID-19 itself, which countries like Sweden and Belarus have controlled by protecting the nursing homes, that's keeping people from work. It's lockdowns prohibiting people from doing most kinds of work. And people lockdowns seem to have become the default standard for cowardly politicians. So Every time there's a slight spike in COVID cases in most of these big states, like Illinois right now is trying to shut down agrarian southern Illinois because COVID cases, not deaths, there are almost no deaths, have risen over some imaginary threshold. That's what's keeping all these people out of work. And I mean, in some countries like India, policy like this could literally cause starvation. Even here, if you look at what some of the lockdowns include, it borders on the ridiculous, no no indoor dining. You can dine outdoors, but only in parties larger than six, but smaller than 25. You can't make reservations. All of this stuff was written out in detail by the same kind of bureaucrats that give us traffic policy and the tax code. And that is what is preventing people from working. I suppose someone could say, look, Riley, you're being a little glib. Those lockdowns have probably saved lives. I don't think so. We can debate that. But at the most basic level, it's that decision to try to protect those lives, put most generously, or that decision to lock down out of panic, put least generously, that's keeping people out of work. It's not just... The virus itself, their entire country, like most of Asia and Sweden, where people have just decided, I'm going to put on a mask, take this risk and go back to work here. You can't do that in many states because of gubernatorial decision. You'd be arrested if you tried. And yes, those states specifically, I mean, you call that California. uh, We both mentioned Illinois. Those are the states that have massive unemployment figures.
5: Absolutely. And that's to me, the biggest concern, you know, that's all been my concern, because here's the thing like well, I said as I stated earlier it's hard to distinguish between a pandemic impact on an economy and bad government policies if they're all enacted at the same time and this mm-hmm. is are interrelated because we specifically knew what was going to happen in april when we had the shutdown we knew that we were throwing people out of work this was not i mean nobody sat back and said nothing bad is going to happen with this everybody said we have to do a short term pain so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. Yep. Uh, but by time May rolled around, we basically the you know, states continued various economic restrictions. Even the states, I would say, uh, like Iowa, for example, where I live, you still had economic restriction Nowhere near, let's like, say, New York, where at that time in May or June, I mean, literally, uh, you could you couldn't work at all because the businesses were <laughs> shut down. Yeah, My daughter was uh, works in the museum system, and she could go to work because there were no museums open. Uh, whereas, okay, but you still had, okay, in the case of uh, Iowa, you would have a percentage of you know, X number of people. You have to do this, do that. You have to, like, for example, there are no sitting at bars, at the bar table itself. You have to, you know, if you go into a bar, uh, you know, you basically have to eat at the table that are six feet apart. And they have no, you know, you can't just, you know, go up to the old bar because they took out all the chairs. <laughs> so it was a degree. Yeah. In, in, yeah, go ahead.
3: No, no. I mean, yeah. There, there obviously are different degrees to which states yeah. and industry sectors. A lot of this is done uh, at the discretion of the private sector. Also, in most states, have tried to protect against COVID-19. I don't, I don't personally have from a political or consulting perspective, a lot of problems with some of this. I mean, things that we do in businesses in Frankfurt, mostly just out of courtesy. I mean, you have a separate entrance and exit. Um, A business might require or request masks. You have to protect the people that work there, kind of the $10 spit shield they used to have only in gas stations you know, people do keep a distance. That probably does more than anything else. There's nothing wrong with any of that. If you feel that we're in the middle of the equivalent of a very severe flu epidemic, like 1819s or 57s, there's no reason to take or not to take those kind of precautions. What's specifically different in terms of the USA's response to COVID-19 this time is this sort of global panic that was produced by these very specific papers like Neil Ferguson 2020, Uh, Pueo 2020, where people are predicting these death tolls between 2 and 15 million, and the the entire world just shut down. I mean, first Britain, then the USA, Spain, and Italy were already dealing with the bug by this point. And now as we pull back, I mean, we look at some of these countries, and Italy, I mean, they're doing better than we are. They suffered a total of something like 25,000 deaths, again, average age eighty three. And we realized that the initial reaction was a bit extreme, but that initial reaction is what separated this from any previous disease epidemic. No one's ever objected more than just in terms of casual irritation at being told to wear a mask by a private business owner. No one's ever objected to being told during past disease crises to stay a few feet away from someone who was coughing, right? The the issue this time is that we didn't just quarantine people, which means taking sick people and isolating them. We told millions of healthy people that they couldn't interact normally. And now in some of the large blue states, governors are continuing with this in, I would say the face of mounting evidence from Eastern Europe, from Sweden, from other countries, because it's sort of the default. Look how much we care. We won't, you know, like that that quote, not one senior life. And that is what's damaging the economy. The COVID-19 itself has some effect, but again, you can just look at that ten percent in the lockdown states, five percent in the non-lockdown states, five point five. No reason to exaggerate, and you know see what that difference is. That's a measurable difference.
5: Yeah, hold on. To that. This is Tom Donaldson with uh, uh, Will Riley, Professor Will Riley, Kentucky State University. Uh, here are the Donaldson files on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
7: Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro.
5: Yeah, this is uh, Tom Donaldson here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back. And also, a uh, Life uh, Cafe broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center located at 2920 East Market Street in Greensboro, North Carolina. The broadcast features a Bible study-like atmosphere while taking a laid-back approach to learning the Word of God. Serve with a free continental breakfast. Listen to the broadcast every Saturday evening at 5. Eastern Standard Time of the Pro. Interest in having your own show? Advertising? Email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. Once again, we're back with uh, uh, Professor Riley. Yeah, I guess my question I would throw back is maybe in the past, uh, you, know, you know, in past pandemics, we you know we have you know, never gone as far as we've done in this pandemic. And maybe the and yet you know we we have a dispute of the science. You know, the science of what you know what you and I are talking about, the research, I mean you know, we can have our disagreements on the impact of a lockdown on you know on lives, say, you know, did we save lives? Did we reduce the number of cases? I'm with you. I don't see any evidence of that but I do see the evidence of the economic side of the equation, which has its own impact. And and I once you know, made the observation on this show several months ago, we may end up killing more people with, with our policies than we are going to be saving lives. You know, you know, with the, you know, the, the virus itself will do less damage to than what we will do to ourselves. with these policies. And I know it's, it's one of the, you, know, you make the, the state of you know coward, I guess you used the word cowardice or taking the easy way out because you know obviously you know when you have a media that's the way we have our media today uh, you know it's you know bring out I'm I'm kind of reminded of that old Monty on the Holy Grail where they said bring out the dead bring out the huh. dead <laughs> you know that you know that scene and the guy says oh, no I'm not dead yet. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Give him a knock but over yeah. the head.
5: Yeah, knock over the head. Yes, <laughs> but it it comes down to is there's a connection between the two? And I think you know the studies that you did for us. You know the second study. Once you know you put them together and you look at them side by side, you've done a pretty good job of connecting the one over here. Where okay, did we true? What did we truly end up accomplishing? dealing with COVID versus, you know, the economic side of the equation with both don't connect. It's almost like they try to keep it separate, but you really can't.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's, that is correct. It it seems like we're, we're talking through some of the same questions in detail here. Um, But yeah, like the basic question about whether lockdowns save lives has two components i guess the first is do lockdowns preserve a great many more lives than the other alternative which isn't throwing you know indoor rave parties for grandmothers it's well done social distancing like what they did in sweden and japan so if you have a system set up where people are encouraged if not told to wear masks where there's six foot distancing provided in businesses where you have maybe a charitable network set up to provide for seniors so that it's mostly healthy young people outside, if that's scenario one, and scenario two is one of these idiotic lockdowns, is obviously showing my bias there, but is there a dramatic difference in death between scenario one and scenario two? And the answer is we don't really seem to see that. Uh, some people will look at Sweden and say, well, they've had you know, eight times as many deaths as neighboring Finland. But if you really want to unpack that, first of all, the total number of those deaths is around 6,000. So, again, I don't think you can morally justify shutting down nations the size of the northern European states or the United States to protect that number of people. Millions of people just die every year. in um, there are other variables at play as well. I mean, Finland is, I believe, a third or a fourth the size of Sweden. It's a more concentrated country as you get into the Helsinki suburbs, so on down the line. So when you actually do direct comparisons, I don't think you can argue lockdowns have preserved that many more people than just common sense would have. But the second element of this is what we've kept touching on during this conversation, which is sort of years of life as a result of lockdown. So the cost of the lockdowns isn't just I suppose there might be some people in, you know, close in environments that died under a lockdown that wouldn't have otherwise. Um, And the conversation shouldn't just center on those people that would have died of COVID if there were no lockdown. Another key element is what's the total cost of the lockdown in terms of the number of people that died of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic violence, so on, as a direct result of the lockdown policy. And that number is undoubtedly very high. I mean, we we haven't yet compiled this data, but, I mean, if you talk casually to anyone from a big state suicide hotline, they'll tell you that calls are up anywhere from 80% to 700%. Those are the figures I've heard on either end of that. I mean – If you look through the number of people that did not take a visit to the doctor for another purpose during COVID-19, that's again, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands for things like pancreatic cancer treatments. So all of those people, anyone in that group that dies, because they're not dealing with, for example, a lymphoma, all of those people would be on the negative side of the ledger. When you're looking at the cost benefit of lockdowns, I think last sentence here, but I think there's no doubt that lockdowns cost more years of life than they saved, because you're saving primarily very ill individuals that are already in nursing homes or hospices, and you're killing a broad range of people who happen to be struggling with alcohol problems or with a serious cancer before this.
6: Yeah,
5: here's the thing that goes back to the point we started the conversation earlier. Because I've stated very clearly, you know, on my timeline, and I've made this point before, the scientific class that we have today, there has to be a day of reckoning in this regard. Because, I mean, to me, you know, when I've seen what happened with Scott Atlas, not just, let's say, with Twitter, but, okay, you, it's almost like there's a war against this guy, And yet, you know, when this guy goes up and people ask him questions, he said, well, here's the data that I'm looking at. I'm not. Yeah, you know, Here's your data. It's not like the guy doesn't go out there and say, Here's the data. It's out there mm-hmm. if you want to look at it. And But here's, you know, I'm going to put it this way. I, I'm not going to put, you know, if you want to add to your point on this, I stated like two months ago, I would have fired Tony Fauci two months ago. <laughs> and my, my reason was two things. It was number one, he overestimated the lethality of the virus. He he basically went to Congress starting in March. Hey, this is 10 times worse than the flu. Then it was 20 times worse than the flu. And he was giving out these numbers that have never come anywhere near that. I mean, we're looking at 0.2, which basically to 0.3, what basically means we're talking two to three per thousand who are dying of this virus. And the flu for the past decade, you're looking at one per thousand. And the question is, what's your policy to save those one or two extra per thousand, what's the cost? And he's never come back and say – and his insistence on continuing, you know, of hinting at lockdowns or hinting at more economic restrictions would indicate to me a guy who hasn't learned anything from the past eight months. You can make the case in April that maybe we should have had a temporary lockdown not to keep the system, the hospital system overwhelmed, but beyond that, you know, there is no more. I mean, I mean, the data you presented, the data I've looked at from others, will said back at this point, you know, that you know, he's been wrong on the two biggest issues, and he hasn't yeah. taken those back.
3: Yeah, and one thing that I would say here is that experts are wrong all the time. Um, Either I alone or both of us have mentioned Tom Soule during this call. And one of the things he has said over and over in books like The Vision of the Anointed is when not just some random drunk guy's opinion, but when the consensus opinion of the majority of sort of solid workmen plus educated upper middle class people is on one side of the coin – and the opinions of experts in some very specific field are on the other side of the coin. Unless you're talking about something specific like rocket ship design, the massive number of intelligent, ordinary people are probably right. And you saw this to some extent with COVID 19, where a large number of people in anything from the Facebook mom groups to the general social science statistical community, which is where I fall, to the doctors at Sweden's National Institute of Health were saying, this is nothing to toy with but it's not going to be apocalyptic this surely has to have gotten out of china in say december or january that's those the symptoms people are reporting so on down the line um and we need to take precautions but not go crazy that was a a huge block of individuals and on the other side you had specific doctors like neil ferguson and anthony fauci who were saying well based on this single set of wuhan data And based on kind of the worst-case scenario predictions we feel ethically compelled to use, we're looking at potentially tens of millions of people dying from 2 million to, I believe, 15 million with QA And I understand why at first, but governments chose to go with this small group of selected experts rather than with the – expertise of, for example, an Ianitas over there at Stanford who said, well, statistically, there's, there's no way that's the case. There's no way that the average death toll of individuals who are specifically symptomatic and who've taken the first round of COVID test is going to be matched in the general population. And as you said, you understand that decision in April and May, but as things progressed, it started making less and less and less sense. And a pattern that we see in social science is that when experts have come up against that kind of consensus of the intelligent population, they've been wrong over and over and over again. I don't know if you remember Ehrlich's, the population bomb back in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah there's, boy, there's yeah, no boy. way. Without making birth control massively available, there's no way people couldn't double the world's population within X period of years and then double it again. A whole bunch of things, including bluntly the normalization of oral sex, stopped that. It didn't happen. Remember the global cooling 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Before yep. global climate oh, change yeah. is going to kill us all, headline of Time magazine. Um, you know, killer bees and the great northerly migration, the Club of Rome, the ozone hole, acid rain. None of this is to say we should play with the environment, but generally, what people who are single subject disciplinarians is get very, very obsessed on one topic that they research. For a friend of mine, it's ants and take the parameters that they think are the most likely to protect everybody, save everybody and bring this very, very niche focus to the game. And sometimes if you're talking about nuclear power, for example, just terrify the hell out of a lot of people, but they're fairly rarely right. When someone is in that exact pattern of behavior that I just described. And I think that's what we saw with COVID one genuinely important point here, by the way, is that there needs to be a penalty for being wrong in academia. Um, If you look at Neil Ferguson, I believe he still has his tenured chair. And I'm not saying we should be the people to take it from him or anything like this. But this is a guy that probably cost a trillion dollars to the business people of the planet by projecting that in one country alone, two million people are going to die. We haven't handled COVID splendidly and we're at 200,000. So if you're off by an order of magnitude and you're the VP of sales for a large company or you're the general that ends up losing to Iran – you're cashiered. You're done. In academia, that's not how it works because of tenure, because of discipline-specific behavior, so on down the line. But we do need to figure out something to do in these cases.
4: Well,
5: here's the thing to me. In the case of Ferguson, quit, ask, get, quit giving him government funding because he's basically <laughs>
6: – <laughs>
5: that, that would be rule one for me. But here's the thing that concerns him most because when, Pete, when you got bad science, you end up with bad policy. It's certainly, you know, the most recent where you had an official WHO say, you know what, guys? There's about three hundred thousand people about ready to starve to death. <laughs> A verge of starvation on this. And and I you know and I look at climate change as an example of bad science with bad modeling. And if you look you know, we won't be talking hundred you know, three hundred thousand, we'll be talking three billion people on the verge of mm-hmm. starvation based on those policy recommendations they have. And when you have people like Mike Inchellaburger, who is, by the way, still a believer in man-made climate change, all but admitting everything we've been telling you people disastrously (laughs) is wrong. I've been uh, exaggerated and lied, and I'm like, well, where is the penalty? You're right. Where's the penalty? It's not just a penalty because you're making decisions. That literally is putting, you know, tens of thousands of people, or hundreds of thousands of people, even in the U.S., you know, at risk. And you're putting them unemployable. And you have to ask yourself, well, if we're going to keep doing the same thing all over again with these modeling, you know, where we know that these models haven't even been right, mm-hmm. as you stated, you know, you've mentioned Paul early. You know, I kind of joke, i you know, I've. You know, i'm you know, i'm in my mid sixties and i i think i've lived through seven or eight of the uh, end of the world scenarios
3: you yeah no <laughs> so, that's that's not a joke i mean no yeah, club of rome i mean that's that's probably about accurate yeah i, I don't i don't have an additional joke there i just i think that's probably right
5: yeah well yeah i mean it, 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 you know it's you know it's absolutely right because it, it's You know, this is a problem I have because we're going to run into the exact same thing in the future, like with the Green New Deal and with with the science. You know, as I stated earlier, you you mentioned, you know, got the lethality wrong. And the worst part is he hasn't acknowledged the fact he got it wrong. Ferguson, this is not the first time he's gotten something this badly off.
3: Yeah, you done it but, five or six times. Remember, bird flu, a million were going to die. I mean, these were official government projections.
5: And uh, you're absolutely right. And I've always stated, you know, you may, you may have tenure, but doesn't mean your university gets most government funding or you keep getting government funding to do this. Huh.
3: Because
5: Ferguson, I guarantee you, he's living and dying off government funding.
3: Yeah, I think that one kind of final line to take from both your comments and mine would be, I would expect the climate change models to be almost as exa- almost exactly as accurate as the COVID-19 models. So what I mean by that isn't it's a hoax or anything like that. I think, yes, the world will warm up several degrees. There may be deaths that even reach into the millions out of 8 billion people at that point. But the idea that the seas will rise and we won't do anything to stop them, or these models that include worst-case parameters and no term for human behavior – they are very, very likely not going to accurately predict what actually happens any more than the COVID models did. We didn't.
5: I'm going to let you hold on a thought because we're about the last, actually we're at the last 10 seconds. So I want to, again, don't forget you have a book called Taboo. Uh, Where can they get it real quick? Uh,
1: Amazon.
5: (laughs) Amazon Amazon.com. All right. Listen, Dr. Riley, thank you very much for being on the show I didn't mean to cut you this short, but I'm yeah, basically well. – I'm now at the last 10 seconds, and I'm going to say good night. You hear from the Donaldson Files, and we'll join you tomorrow.
3: Your voice, your
8: vote, and we're just days away from being able to cast a ballot, either by mail or at the polls, but mounting concern tonight and questions on whether more security measures may be necessary to protect you and your vote. ABC 15's Nicole Valdez finding out if you can trust you'll be safe at the polls.
9: I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully.
4: That statement made just minutes after President Trump riled up right-wing groups like the Proud Boys Tuesday night. Stand back and stand by. The Proud Boys and other extremist groups like Boogaloo have been seen at protests heavily armed. So will they bring their guns to your polling place to do more than watch you line up to vote? We asked Maricopa County Election Day Director Scott Jarrett. Should voters be worried about going to the polls this year?
2: Absolutely not. Voters should, if they want to cast a ballot in person, um, they should not be worried. They should come to our polls.
4: He assures there are people in place that won't allow intimidation, poll workers, inspectors.
2: And then we also have a marshal, and their role is to uh, walk uh, through the polling location, make sure that no one within the polling location is performing any sort of action or behavior that could impede or intimidate another voter. They're trained
4: to de-escalate any situation that could scare or discourage voters on site, but there's a fourth group to remember will be there, poll watchers. You might remember the President mentioned them, too.
9: Poll watches are very safe, very nice thing.
2: in Arizona, we call them political party observers. We welcome those political party observers into the polling location. However, they do need to work with the county chair for each political party to uh, be able to perform that function. And then they would need a letter with actually a wet signature uh, to come to our polling locations.
4: He says those parties also have to provide counties a list of names. so, not just anyone can show up, despite the president's seeming call to action.
2: That may be a concern for some voters, but we are doing everything within the election department to be prepared, no matter what that situation may may present itself.
4: What about law enforcement, though? The elections department says they work with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, but...
2: The Sheriff's Office is not going to be around uh, any of our locations. What we have is they are assigned different regions of the valley and then we can call them if there was a situation and then at that point in time and only as a last resort would they go to a boat center.
4: When we asked MCSO though they painted a different picture telling us in the past MCSOs had judicial enforcement deputies at the polls sometimes even in uniform to ensure everyone is complying with regulations and address any complaints that may arise. This year, they told me they'd instead have deputies outside the polls in plain clothes and unmarked vehicles standing by. That contradicts election officials.
2: And there will be not any, anything that's out of the norm. They'll be performing their normal patrol activities, but nothing above and beyond what they've done on any other day, um, whether it's early voting, whether it is election day, or whether there's not an election going on at all.
4: Phoenix Mayor Kay Gallego chiming in, addressing the heightened concern, saying in part, it is disturbing to see the specter of voter intimidation being raised at our country's highest level. This subject is top of mind for us, and we intend to protect the sanctity of the right to vote. So what can you truly expect at the polls? Well, MCSO clarifying say they will actually not be outside. They'll just be in the area. So no major uniform police or law enforcement presence there. However, if groups do decide to show up, whether they be armed extremists or other groups, Arizona law requires they stay at least 75 feet away from a polling location. The same rules that apply to anyone who's trying to solicit your vote. I'm Nicole Valdez, ABC 15, Arizona.
1: Hey, we want to welcome our listeners to You and the Law on the the News Radio Network. Uh, I am uh, one of the co-hosts of the show, uh, Chief Virgil Green, and the other host of the show goes by the name of T Swag. T Swag, how you doing, brother?
8: I'm doing good, man. How you doing?
1: Oh, man, I'm doing good. I'm doing good, sir. Hey, we've got a... uh, You're
8: finally getting it right, man. I don't have to remind you what my name is, so I appreciate that.
1: Well, you know what, man? I actually, I studied on it. I made sure I got got some sticky notes in front of me. So I've got, there's no way possible that I can uh, not pronounce and introduce you as T-Swag of you and the law. (laughs) <laughs> All right Well, hey, man, we, we've got a, a, a very inter- a very good show uh, for our listeners today And so we're, we're going to take up this topic that uh, is everybody's concerned with And, and it's definitely the people that are going to the polls to vote And we are, uh, as well as law enforcement So today uh, we're going to be talking about how law enforcement is preparing for potential elections Related unrest. And so uh, it's something that we briefly talked about on the show, but I think it's something that, especially Keith, since so many people are going to the polls, there's so many long lines in so many different states, and how law enforcement is, is preparing for this early voting, plus everything is going to lead up to November the 3rd. So uh, I think it's uh it's something that uh we talked about and, and we thought it would, it would be a good topic to uh talk with our listeners about.
8: Yeah, I uh, I did uh I went and voted today, man. I wanted to get that out of the way and it wasn't uh sometimes the earlier in the day there's the bigger crowds and the later in the day, but some point in the middays it's not that bad. But uh millions and millions of people have already casted their votes and uh today when I was at the uh poll, which are county locations here in Arkansas uh the county has jurisdictions during doing uh polling during voting uh time and so uh there were uh, some county deputies uh in plain clothes uh working uh the event
1: oh really okay okay well and uh yeah, very think, nice know... very
8: professional basically just working the door
1: to
6: you know mm-hmm. because
8: of the uh because of the uh, social distancing, they were working the door, letting so many people in. They weren't standing near the uh, polling machines or anything like that. Really, just letting people in. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Well, and I guess you know one of the things every state every state is going to be different. Every city is going to be different, and so um, and, and comes along with that is you know people should really uh, know what their uh, laws are in their state or in their in their city that they're that they're voting in and especially with the uh just the climate of, of the conversation that is that is the the rhetoric about you know people showing up at polls, uh you know, potential for voter intimidation and um, you know, you've got some uh white extremist groups who uh there is. They have obviously threatened that they would show up at polling places, and so that that brings on a lot of um, that brings on some concern for law enforcement on how they're going to to um, to deal with that, especially with the information that has been coming down from the uh, FBI to local law enforcement and to state law enforcement about the potential for some type of unrest yeah it's very
8: serious, man. We're starting to have weekly meetings uh with the mayor uh and uh emergency management and local law enforcement officials to discuss our response to uh, the actually the weekend before up to the weekend after the election
1: okay okay well and and that's a, something else you know uh there's a a lot of conversations with Mayors and and police Chiefs and and other you know uh, Voting officials about The um, You know what kind of information What kind of intelligence information is coming Down that they need to be concerned About and how they're going to be able to um, uh, You know disseminate that information And so uh, some Proactive measures can take place To protect people at the polls Because you know this is a uh, we're we're li- just living in a different times where uh, before no you know four years ago there wasn't a concern about people going to the polls to vote but now there is a concern. But Keith, we're going to take our first break and uh, we're going to come back and we're going to jump back into this topic. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
4: Greetings
7: and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
9: To you and the law, with uh, Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey, Chief Swag, she's calling Swag, as they bring you the um, real talk in law enforcement in this climate, uh, dangerous times, and and what they have to do as law enforcement to protect citizens, even those who <laughs> listen to my show. You know I want to say but won't say. Six four six nine two nine zero one three zero the number to get in touch with us. Uh, press one if you want to get on the line. I'll check you. You want to get on the line, and we'll get you on with your question. If not, you can email us labachelorforty at gmail Chat room is open too, or go to or remember to go to their Facebook uh, page uh, for updates as well. Back to the homeboys, Chief Keith Humphrey. Chief Virgil Green, right here on the Baton News Radio Show on the Baton News Radio Network. Hey, we want to welcome everybody back
1: to You and the Law on the Baton News Radio Network, and we definitely thank our uh, our producer, who is who got is just as much swag as the Chief Swag dude. The the cool watch it, now. The, watch, it. Watch, uh, watch, it now. watch it watch it
6: watch it watch <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, man But hey, this is this is a serious topic, uh, Keith That and, and hopefully our listeners will definitely uh, stay in tune with us throughout the show And if you got some comments or concerns about uh, the topic that we're talking about uh, and, and how law enforcement is going to ensure that, you, you know, you're safe when you go to the polls If you do go to the polls on Election Day or if you have already went to the polls Uh, call in and share some of uh, some of uh, some things that you were either concerned about or wasn't concerned about, or or just talk to us about uh, how your experience were and did you feel that there was any kind of um, tension at the polls, uh, in, in the state that you're in. You know, we got people listening to us from you know, all over from you know, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas uh Virginia, Florida, everywhere. So just, just feel free to chime in and, and 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 uh talk with us as we talk to you about law enforcement, how uh there's preparations being done for potential election related unrest, Keith.
8: Yeah, it's gonna this is uh the first time I've ever heard in my law enforcement career, something of this nature being taken so seriously, man. It's uh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be a new thing for us uh, this year.
1: Yeah, and, you know, Keith, I think a lot of, you know, some people can probably say, man, what is, the, what is the big hype? What is the big concern about it? Oh, you're blowing this out of proportion. Oh, it's not going to be that bad. Or the more you talk about it, now you're just inciting people to do certain things. And what do you say to people that, that may have that kind of um, mindset about it? Well, I think that you just need to
8: be honest with people and say that there is this potential. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, you've got to trust law enforcement uh, based on the intelligence that they receive. And I think the worst thing you could do is not be honest. Uh, but I think at the same time, you want people to understand that you're not going to violate their rights to vote. There's not going to be a large police presence. Uh, you know, we will be in the area. But, you know, I think the main thing is, hey, it's, it's needed, man. The, the things that we're hearing and uh, the things that are coming from, from different people, uh, the um, incitement that's coming from different people, we, we just don't know what to expect. And, and, and this is, you know, I'm not the only police chief that's, that's uh, taking these precautions. A lot of people are, like I said before. I've locked down my uh my departments. Uh there's no officers allowed to take uh leave uh the uh, the Saturday before until the Saturday after. Now there are some that that were already off, you know, that had paid for vacations and things like that, and that's very few. But uh yeah, man, it it's uh we just gotta be honest with people and, and they're going to have to listen to their law enforcement uh officials. Uh, and um, you know, but we got to be careful to make sure people don't panic.
1: Yeah, and, and and you know, and that's a good word. You know, we're not having this conversation to, to put, you know, for people to panic or to have some kind of fear or, or you know, we're not insinuating hey that there's just going to be this unrest. Uh, I think you know this is something that if you are paying close attention to the to to the news. Um, and, and we're not going to get caught up Into what people think Oh this is fake news or whatever But you know if you have a reliable source uh, That you listen to And you get your news from You you definitely have uh, Have heard that There are the potential for You know some type of You know unrest uh, the, Either the day of the election Or days after the election And, and it's just upon Upon law enforcement to Keith, to be prepared. And, you know, one of the things that that we all say in law enforcement, you you plan for the worst and hope for the best, Keith.
8: Well, you know, and and it's not just the weekend before and the weekend after, Virgil. It's it's, it's basically we're two weeks away. So right now we're still uh, prepping. And so we don't know what's going to happen if – if the election is not decided that night, we don't know how long it'll be before the election is certified. We don't know what type of unrest we're going to have, no matter who wins i think I think we have the potential in the nation, no matter who wins uh to have some type of uh unrest uh you know whether they're large protests, whether they become uh i don't want i don't I don't like to predict violence, but you know what they could be large protests that have the potential to lead to something more extreme, but we just don't know. Uh, I mean, I, you know, it's uh, uh, the only thing we can do is just be prepared.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and you know, one of the things, Keith, is that is a concern that that's a part of this conversation that we're having is the fact that, you know, just a week ago, you know, what seven to what ten people were, were arrested and brought up on charges for plotting to kidnap the the governor of, um, I want to say, what was it, uh, uh, one of the states where she, where they were unhappy with how she had been handling the, the pandemic and, you know, they stormed the, the state capitol. And so you have these groups of, of individuals who are, who have been labeled, by the FBI is, you know, homegrown domestic uh, terrorist uh, groups. But you also have groups who have really not been identified and who I'm pretty sure there's been some type of surveillance on some of these groups, depending on how they are communicating with each other, that um, that may take it upon themselves in small groups to go out and, and, and to, and to do some things when uh, people are at the polls uh, voting or the day of the election or days after the election, as you state, we may not know until you know uh, days or weeks after November the third who will be the the next president, or will the current president be reelected so um, there there's just some things that law enforcement has to plan and prepare for because That's just the nature of the business. If you don't plan and prepare, uh, you're going to be caught behind uh, the ball in in trying to uh, do some preparations while you have these things occurring.
8: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, challenging times for uh, the nation, very challenging times for the nation, man.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, one of the things, Keith, is that a lot of people, you know, have asked questions about, You know, hey, can I carry a gun to my polling place, Uh, uh, whether, you know, open carry or concealed? And, uh, you know, one of the things, again, is this goes back to people, whatever state, you know, for our listeners, whatever state you live in, you know, check your uh, laws in your state as to what you can, what, you know, and for your safety, because I think, and this is for people who feel like I don't know what's going to happen if I go to the polls. So, can I legally carry my weapon to the polls? And, and Keith, one of the things that that I found out, you know, preparing for the show was that uh, in the state of uh, South Carolina, uh, they, uh, it's in in South Carolina, you can bring an open carry handgun into the pole booth. So but yeah. you, you can bring an open carry rifle or a long gun inside. So that here's a state in South Carolina that, that has some but one of the things is that law enforcement has to stay at least a hundred feet from a polling booth. So um, again Those are some things that You know can people Fear that hey if these groups Show up is this Some form of intimidation you know And uh, right. Especially for especially for minorities Especially for black especially for people Who you know You know whatever age group you're in Especially uh, you know A lot of older uh, people Who they just don't trust the mail System they're going to Go to the polls and they're going to either vote earlier They're going to vote the day of But they get there and they see These large groups of, of individuals Walking around with handguns That they didn't see four years ago Or they didn't see in, in previous elections So, you know, and again the, the, the question is, Keith When people see this Is that a potential for you know, nine one one call centers to be overflowed with with calls about people uh, in the area Polling places with handguns. What what added uh, things is that going to bring on on uh, local uh, law enforcement?
8: Yeah, I think because you're going to have individuals that even if it's even if it's uh, legal, you're going to have individuals, Virgil, that uh, they they don't know that it's legal. There's going to be some alarms. Uh, people are going to be alarmed. Uh, people are going to be mad. Uh, people are going to want. Yeah. So yeah, there is that potential of having nine one one, you know, flooded with calls. Uh, and there are those potentials of officers having to go out and, and tell citizens that hey, that person is has a right to carry that weapon uh, on on the grounds of the polling locations. Which, like I said, is going to, you know, uh, because just think about this. Virgil, there are individuals that do not like weapons. There, there are individuals who oh, are yeah. just afraid of weapons. So you do have that potential yeah. of citizens that may have that fear when they see that weapon. They might turn around
1: and leave the poll Yeah.
8: So I mean, you, you, you know what that, I, that is right. a, you know that's yeah. a, that's a you're, possibility.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and and that's a good and and again that goes the conversation that we're having and and what's what has been had across the country in the last days and last weeks when we talk about voter intimidation uh, you've got individuals who may they may plot to do this and and think that well you know people see us they'll just turn around and they'll just go home they won't vote you know Um, and again that is a concern especially uh, in in the uh, in the black community, uh, because again we're seeing you know record number of turnouts is being re- uh, reported uh, across the country, especially in the South, uh, you know South Carolina and North Carolina, um, Georgia, you know there's just record number of people that are turning out early to do early voting, and uh, but one good thing that you know we have not heard of any type of of incidents that have occurred with the early voting but keith uh we're gonna take uh, another uh, another break and uh we'll come back and get back into this topic but you're listening to you and the law on the bachelor news radio network
7: if you want real discussions on politics social issues racial issues and other topics then tune into the bachelor news radio show Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed.
6: Do I love you?
9: Do I love you? And I have sent him because I do this two.
7: Can you let me know right now, please? Can you let me know?
9: Welcome back to UN The Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, the Bachelor News uh, WCOM. In Chapel Hill and Carborough. 646 929 0130, the number um, is the number to get in touch you. Uh, correction, my mistake. I'm so used to saying that you and the law uh, on the Bassett News uh, radio network. Uh, the chat room is open. And uh, if you get me on your line asking you if you have a question, make sure that you let me know yes or no, and I can let Chief Humphrey and Chief Green know. Did get a question. About the perception of fair and balanced um, chiefs as it relates to law enforcement, and I'll give you an example just to take it a step further. Um, I was in Florida when it was Bush v. Gore, and we and I was on the air we got calls from people saying, "Hey, the precinct is the, the is closed hey." The cops are setting up roadblocks. Hey, the cops are stopping people for uh, their IDs, and people couldn't get to the polls. So there's a lot of that out there in the in the midst of the climate of the idiot in the, the White House putting all this stuff out there. So how do you dispel those concerns? I guess you would say myths, especially with you two honest Aves on the line. But how do you dis- dispel those type of Concerns that Black and Brown people in their communities have when they go out and vote.
8: Well, very, I mean, well, LA, if I may, I think the main thing is uh, the chief or their heads or someone in, in the higher local government capacity has to put out some type of uh, notice that you know that local jurisdiction will not be uh, at local voting locations. The only reason, in, in and whose jurisdiction it is, you know, like I said, it's, norm, it's the county's jurisdiction when it's a voting, uh, I know here in Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas, it's the county's jurisdiction. So they would have the right to any type of enforcement. Now, however, when it becomes to a point, if it becomes where they would request mutual aid, uh, we would have to respond to assist. But as far as us blocking roadways, as far as us, uh, turning people away—that's not our job. That's what the—that's what the uh, the voting uh, those employees that are working—that that's their job. We don't we don't get involved in that, uh, and we and if we need to let people know that.
1: Well, you know, and I'll say this, Keith. I think you know what what could potentially happen, and probably what has happened in the past is that you you have people who are going to their local school to vote or their local church to vote, wherever their you know, their, their polling uh, precinct is. And, you know, as they're traveling to, to their polling location, they get pulled over by the police. Uh, and, you know, then next thing you know, here's several other people who are getting, you know, pulled over by the police and there's, there's, uh, you know, these, what you call rolling, you know, these traffic stops That are occurring as people are going To the polls, and I think What what, L, what L.A. was, was Kind of, you know, getting At is that the potential For Some type of law enforcement Intervention into people uh, Going to the polls Because, as, yeah, as it, you know Keith, you it, know, we, we talk About people sure. who
6: it's Go ahead, Ellie not-
9: I'm sorry about that. Um, it it uh, it 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 was local law enforcement and sheriff's departments that were doing it. Yeah, well, and I, you know, and I know,
1: you know, Keith was saying as far as the jurisdiction of the poll uh, of what people go to vote, but we have a lot of uh, schools that people utilize to vote. We have churches. We have, you know, even other. Uh, you know, Masonic Hall lodges that are being used for for polling, and, and you know, so I, where what people in the in the Black community is concerned about is the fact that, hey, you know, what if what if law enforcement is is some of these officers are are, con, you know, involved with this here where they're you know doing random traffic stops and pulling people over, um, that can be a concern with with people. Because, again, you know, I just think only law enforcement really needs to step back and really look at everything that has happened, especially with the things that happened with George Floyd, all the protests, and then the Breonna Taylor, and and all these other things that have happened, and law enforcement has been dead in the front of it, and Now all of a sudden you've got some police officers who are are going to take it upon themselves to do certain things that people in the black community are going to feel like, well, you're trying to prevent me from going to vote.
8: Well, you know, Virgil and LA, I'll tell you something's interesting. I'm really proud of one of my patrol majors. Uh, There's there's a a location, which is a polling location uh, here in the city, and uh they're they are having where they they're, uh where the early voting is occurring, and they were having another event they normally have a weekly event there where it's a um food food uh handout i mean a uh, you know where people are getting free food and mm-hmm. uh we were we were actually asked <laughs> to uh stop people from parking uh in the people who are parking to go vote early them from parking there so that this this uh program could take place and what it uh, was the patrol major said you know unfortunately y'all gonna have to find another location because we don't want to do anything that would send the message that the the little rock police department are preventing people from going into polls and so that was mm-hmm. that was i thought that was a really good move by that by that patrol commander uh, to let them know, hey this is the deal and and the and the and the organization that's that sponsors that uh food drive uh understood and 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 so because it is a uh Hispanic church that sponsors that food drive, and so the way we handle it, the way that patrol major handled it, they understood, so they've made alternate plans uh so that no one feels as though they're being uh harassed or they feel as though they they're not being allowed to park to go in and exercise their, their right to vote. So I thought that was, I think those are things that we're starting to see uh, here in our city.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think one of the things just, you know, Keith that we have to, you know, that has to be discussed is the fact that even with the, the protesting going on with these rallies that, that take place and, uh, you are seeing uh just widespread uh you know right right wing extremist groups who who are supporting trump they're not you don't see them uh, you know out here doing this with the with the biden campaign but you do see these extremist groups who are who are trump supporters they're they're proudly you know with the trump flag and uh some of them even all of them even have the the uh the flag that represents law enforcement you know the uh the the flag that's you know black white, and blue you know so uh, you've got those flags that are being put in there, and so you have people who are looking at that and they're saying well you've got the president who is being Heavily endorsed by these police unions And this is something we're going to be jumping into next week on our show uh, Talking about police unions endorsing political candidates But you've got the president who has aligned himself with, with, with law enforcement And he's saying, well, hey, I'm going to send you guys out And this is what you guys are going to do Well, I don't, you know, how many... How many top officials have really came out and said, or police unions, uh, you know, the FOP has come out and said, no, that's not our role. We will not do this. You know, but but you're seeing these groups show up with firearms. You, you know, there's there's a lot of, they're expressing anger. There's frustration going on. So you add all of this tension, it's just that's why law enforcement really needs to be prepared to deal with what could potentially happen between now and November the third.
8: Yeah, and, and I will tell you, Virgin, to be to be fair, because you know, we talked before that we want to make sure people understand we don't we don't get into political topics, but there are also those groups that are on the extreme left that are counterproductive towards the other you know, so you got the extreme right groups, you got the extreme left groups and And then you've got the individuals who all they want to do is vote all they
6: yeah. want all
8: they want to, they want to yeah. do is vote now the difference the difference is the extreme right groups like the Klan and the proud boys and things are listed as by the f b i as terrorist groups. I and mean, then you do have some on the extreme left that that aren't but at the same time when both when both groups get together uh it could be really it could be really really ugly and yeah. You know, one of the questions uh, Larry uh, just asked a question, and uh, his um, he asked about what do we do about voting places that have overflow that impede traffic. And and Larry, one of the things that that's why we're having these meetings, these emergency management meetings, uh, to think ahead of how do you keep that from happening. Uh, You might have to, and 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 there may be points where you might have to have, unfortunately. You might have to have an officer out there directing traffic. It's not the best thing, but it keeps the the, the, the lines flowing evenly. Uh, you might have to come up with different routes and things like that. So there's really no easy um, answer because every situation, every location is going to be handled differently. But I can tell you that the, the Little Rock Police Department is trying to stay completely out of that. Now, if it gets to that point, we would assist strictly with the traffic part of it. But at the same time, I think you also have county deputies uh, that could assist with that because those polling places are their jurisdiction. However, the street is the jurisdiction of the local law enforcement. So if it becomes a traffic impediment problem, we might have to assist with that. But it's just basically to preserve the peace and to make sure that there aren't any wrecks and, you know, things like that, but it's not our job to cut people off. That would be somebody from inside the polling place to come out and say, hey, the polls have closed.
1: Yeah, Keith, and, and, you know, and I think that was a really good question by by our listener uh, because, again, with the long lines, with so many people, you know, trying to go vote early, in person, uh, and we just – we just don't know what November the 3rd is going to look like the the day of the election um and and again the you know having traffic flowing is a major concern for any police department across the country because again you know potential for having you know pedestrian accidents having uh you know a vehicle accidents that just it the more people and the more Cars you you put into one area, there's a potential for some things to happen that uh, could could cause some some health and safety uh, concerns.
8: Yeah, I think um, I think the main thing is that you have to do is you have to pre-plan and say, hey, we realize this is a major street. This is what we're going to have to do. And the thing about it is, that's how you have the media uh, lit. Citizens know this is the route. This is what's going to happen. This is what we expect. Um, yeah. So you know those are going to be yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. And, well, hey Keith, uh, we're we're coming up uh, on our on our next break, but you know we want to remind our listeners, you know those who are just tuned in that you're listening to you on the, you and the law, on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and the calling number to the show is six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. That's six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. And we want to remind you that you can uh, follow You and the Law on our social media platforms. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. But we're going to take a quick break, Keith, and we'll be back. You're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
0: Recovery Month has become widely recognized and does an outstanding job of celebrating recovery, increasing awareness, and acknowledging the amazing work of providers, advocates, people in recovery, and their families. I believe our work together is helping many Americans better understand, seek out, attain, and sustain recovery. What began as a small and very good idea has grown into a national, mainstream, sustained, and systematic public education and support effort, all focused on the message that people recover. Getting the message of recovery right is critical because people take action based on what they hear and see and, most importantly, what they experience. Experience shapes our knowledge, our values, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our action. Of those who recognized their need for treatment but didn't receive care, the number one reason was no health coverage and could not afford the cost. No one in need should be denied the opportunity for treatment and recovery in our country. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
9: whoa, 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 Welcome back to the show. Oh, uh, guys, I like that. That's some swag stuff right there for you guys. You keep swag, boy, I'd say. That's that biggie right there. Hypnotize. First turn it over welcome back to you and the law on the bass news radio network six four six nine two nine. um oh i'm sorry to hear that um, on the bass news radio network 646 the number to uh get in touch with chief, chief humphrey and chief Virgil Green, I believe guys you got a question from Robert didn't say where he was, he asked have you guys had any officers that have expressed their political views toward any candidate or candidates and has it caused any problems with your department and just to follow up on that uh, I guess to Chief Green's point about you know uh, some of your some of your agencies and some of your, um, uh, uh, you know, the the agencies across the country, either being four against this president or four against uh, Joe Biden, um, it, it really, I would think if they're really into these political things, and, and as Chief Humphrey said, um, you don't take sides here on the show, uh, does that really cause a, a deep, you know, Resentment in your agencies. Yeah,
8: and and I will I will tell you, La. One of the things that we haven't seen, of uh, that that I haven't witnessed, is uh, uh, and Robert, uh, thank you for the question. I, I haven't witnessed a lot of it out in in the in the departments throughout the department. What we do see is we have individuals who uh, say. Uh, use their personal social media uh, to support candidates. Um, so it can cause, especially if you have, you know, the climate that's going on right now. Uh, it can has the potential of causing some, 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 some hard feelings uh, toward each other. And so, you know, you have to have those very strict policies. And the good thing about us, we have the, the overall city policy and our departmental policy. Uh, prohibits the, uh, any type of political endorsement, uh, any type of really discussing politics at work. And so if it's occurring, it's occurring out in the field when, when officers meet up. But, you know, their personal, you know, people follow people on, uh, you know, each other on, on social media. And so people are watching. Uh, and, and, you know, what you have is sometimes people say, uh-huh, I thought so. I thought, I, I, you know, based on who they support, man. I thought, okay, that makes sense now, and, and 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 it can cause some hidden problems, but you know, so far I have not seen those and uh, seen those issues uh, openly in the department.
1: And and you know, just to follow up with that, Keith, and I think you know when we <clears throat> have this topic next week when we're talking about you know uh, the uh, police unions. Who have come out and endorsed, you know, uh, Trump, and now you have got uh, a lot of uh, some of these officers, especially black officers, who have came out and said, "Hey, you know, we we're we're not endorsing, you know, this. This you you can't speak for all of us." And so, uh, you know, I I know officers who. You know, some of them brush their political views as who they want to support, uh, but for the most part, a lot of that just it stays away from the department. And 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 I've always I've always told officers that, and and Keith, you said the same thing that, you know, you can have your political views, but you know, uh, those things do not need to come into the police department because it just adds. Um, some tension and the fact that you know our job is to to protect and serve and not take sides with each, with any uh political candidate and so um and I think that 's why we 've seen uh cases across the the country where police officers have been terminated because of their so their use of social media to express that they are Supporting Trump and they have came out and said certain things about uh, the uh, uh, Camilla Harris and things about Joe Biden and those things are picked up and They're being reported and and oftentimes Keith you you know these things are being Reported by fellow officers well you know
8: what I I will tell you and I'm Going to say this and I I, I was talking to someone the other day Police associations, police departments should not ever endorse any political candidate. So whether that's FOP, whether that's Noble, whether that's ICP, that sets that's, that's a bad precedent because for your entire organization, you, you, you don't. Exactly. Uh, and so yeah. if the board makes a decision that we're going to do that, I mean, are you polling people to find out their feelings? I mean, that in itself can be dangerous. Uh, it can it yeah. can be counterproductive, and so that is just that is crazy. I mean, that's just that's that's something that I really wish law enforcement organizations would stop doing, because that yeah. just in itself can cause you know problems. It's just like law enforcement. Uh, depart, uh, law enforcement organizations Endorsing the NRA Well everybody doesn't support the NRA uh, yeah. So you have to be really careful When you get into those supporting those Type of uh, organizations You just got to be really yeah. careful
1: Yeah Exactly Keith And hey you know Keith we want to definitely thank Robert For for listening to you and the law And, and definitely for uh, Asking us that question And uh, again Robert Thanks for being a, a, a listener to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. But, Keith, we want to remind our listeners that, uh, you know, you're listening to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and today we're talking about how law enforcement is uh, preparing for the upcoming elections and what preparations are being, uh, taking place to make sure that, that you're safe when you go to the polls and that, uh, you know, if you've got any concerns about when you do go to the polls, you know, as a voter, definitely bring those uh, to the attention of uh, the election officials or, or even to to uh, your local law enforcement. You know, the saying, the Keith, is if you hear something, say something. If you see something, say something, um, you know, because, again, we're just, we're living in, in some times where it, there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, what can happen from day to day. And um, the fact that when you have groups of individuals who are plotting to kidnap a governor of a state, uh, man, I just can that that, is, that. That is still mind boggling how these individuals came together to, to formulate, to kidnap, the governor of a state. I mean, that's almost like you're plotting to to kidnap to the next level of the vice president or the pre- who who plans to kidnap a governor and what are you going to do with this person once once you get them? Man, that, that's somebody
8: who is has so much hate in their heart that they can't see straight. I mean, they believe you know people that, that, that plot like that, groups that plot like that have so much hate in their heart. They can't. They can't think straight. They don't. They just think that the, their way is the only way. That is. That is just. You know. I mean. That. That's crazy. It's that's scary. right it along with. Scary. That. That's right along with Dr. Fauci being threatened, receiving death threats. I mean, it, it, this, yeah. Is, this is what yeah. this is what's going on in our nation right now. But the plot to to kidnap the the governor and, and targeting her vacation home and and her family. Man, that yeah. is just,
1: yeah. that, is, that is just, that's crazy. It, it, it is. And, and you mentioned the deal, and we all, you know, we saw it, our listeners listened, saw it this past weekend with the 60 Minutes deal about Dr. Fauci on, on 60 Minutes. And, and now this man has to have armed um, federal officers escort him and his family Wherever they go. So their life was just turned upside down because of the words of the person sitting in the White House and of from other right. individuals who just don't believe this man who is who is who is a scientist. And, and he's telling us we really need to take this serious and and we're not. So um, well, and so, well, you know uh, what, man? He, uh,
8: Yeah, our friend Tom in Chicago brings up a good point about handling death threats and uh, kidnap plots like in Michigan and and things like that. And so, Tom, I thank you for the question. And and I will tell you, you handle it fast and quickly. I mean, that's why you have to have amazing relationships with your federal agencies. Uh, There has to be joint terrorism task force. You have to be part of terrorism task force. But you have to pay attention, uh, you know, no matter how silly a threat might be. Uh, you have to follow up on that, and you have to hit it really quickly. And it does cause alarm. It does cause alarm. And when you have big events like um, gatherings of candidates, candidate gatherings, and when you have events like uh, uh, voting, it it does cause, um, it can cause increased uh, alertness, increased awareness, increased threats. Absolutely it can you know, based on the climate in the nation right now? Absolutely. And oh, then yeah. what happens, yeah. you have copy, you have copycat groups. So you'll have individuals that may not have any intention on carrying out any kind of plot, but they, they to get attention or to uh, alarm people, they will say, this is what we're going to do. And so just doing that carries the same penalty as even or, or, or carrying the same penalty as if you carried it out. So yes, when you do things like this, it does cause alarm. It does cause a heightened security alert uh, at events uh, such as this. And not only—let me just say this real quick—not only campaign events, any type, football games, um, concerts. Absolutely, it, it, it can. Depending on what that group intentions are, what they're trying to prove. Absolutely, it can. If they're trying yeah, to send a message. Nothing. Nothing's off limits.
1: Exactly, and 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 you know, Keith, I want to thank Tom for refreshing my memory. He 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 uh, shared with us that it, you know, was Michigan who the governor of uh, the state of Michigan who uh, these individuals were plotting to kidnap her and and to do whatever they were going to do with her, and, and just Virginia. recently, Keith, and Virginia. Too. And it, yeah, Virginia. And just recently, now we're talking about governors. And just recently, Keith, in Wichita, Kansas that, that Tom is talking about from Chicago is the fact that the mayor of Wichita, Kansas uh, has been receiving death threats. And so, uh, and it's all because of the restrictions with the COVID. And And so when you have, when it gets down to the to the local level where a mayor is receiving death threats and his family is is uh, in harm's way, and now the, the local police department has to take steps to protect the mayor. So yeah. that's why, you know, we, we're having this conversation with, with, with our listeners about how law enforcement is preparing for the, the potential for civil unrest Uh, either the the day leading up to the election or the day of the election or the days after the election, because you've got so much going on, Keith, and this is going on daily. This isn't just, you know, Oh, Hey, you know, Mm -hmm. a week or two goes by this. This is pretty consistent.
8: Well, I think the other thing that concerns, uh, you know, uh, people of color, and uh, people who you know who may fall in in the little liberal category, or independent category, that the governors of Maine, I'm sorry, the governor of Michigan, the governor of Virginia, and this mayor are Democrats,
6: and are so de- it yeah, does
8: cause. Right. It, so it does cause people who may who may vote Democrat. It does cause them to be um, absolutely fearful that if you express. Uh, uh, a concern, like right now, uh, you you would think that people would not have a problem with the mask uh, requirements,
6: Mandated. and it's going to save yeah.
8: lives. Even even though the numbers are increasing, and Fauci has said, and other medical experts have said, the the mask can reduce the chances. So I don't know why people believe they're invincible. People think that they I don't I don't get it. I mean, I don't get it. It's not an inconvenience to wear a mask. It really no. isn't an inconvenience to wear a mask. As a matter no, of it, fact, they have some. They have some quite fashionable masks. So, no, so yeah. you know, it, you don't even have to do that. You could just wear one. One of the basic masks that you can get in yeah. a you know multiple yeah multiple masks in a packet. So there's yeah. there's no reason not to wear a mask. There, there really no. is.
1: And, 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 Keith, again, it just goes back to the rhetoric that's coming from the, the top. And this person is supposed to be the top law enforcement official in the country. And all this, this rhetoric is being uh, disseminated every day. There's tweets going out every second or every minute of the, of the day. And it just continues the cycle of, you know, oh, now people are tired of wearing masks. You know, people are tired of hearing uh, about this. And, I, I mean, again, lives are being saved, but one thing, and, you know, Keith, I think it's it's a very, you know, disheartening to hear, especially with over 200 and some thousand people that have lost their lives to this, and the fact that this man says nothing, none of, his, none of his people really say anything, it's very generic, is that, yeah, one life is is too many. But, you know, not one time have you heard any other sympathy for the people who have lost their lives and for the people who have con- contracted this virus. And the fact that when you contract it, man, you better make sure you got some pretty good health care or you are you know, you've got some pretty good health care providers that are able to take care of you because some people are, are not that fortunate. So, you know, Keith, but, you know, we definitely want to remind our listeners that you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and the call-in number to the show is 646 uh nine two nine oh one three oh And we'll, we want to remind you that if you cannot catch us live, you can definitely catch us on the rebroadcast show, um, every day of the week, uh from four AM to six PM. You can catch those rebroadcast shows at the Bachelor at the bachelornews dot airtime dot pro. That's the uh I I kinda of stumbled across that, but that's at the uh uh dot the airtime dot pro. You can catch the uh, rebroadcast shows of you and the law. But Keith, uh, we're coming to the close of the show, sir. It's been a great show. Well, uh, again, with you, and we definitely appreciate uh, our producer l a from for coming on and and uh, doing what he do to to help us uh, with the show. but we want to remind sure. our listeners next week we're going to be talking about uh the the role of police unions endorsing political candidates and and how that is impacting law enforcement because we've had reports of so some black uh, uh, associations coming out uh, having some concerns with that, Keith. Yeah, and uh, before we go, just really quick, I want
8: to send condolences out to uh, Sergeant Harold Preston, uh, the, his family. Uh, Sergeant Preston's a Houston officer who was killed yeah, today in the line of duty. 41 years on the on the force, and he was uh, two weeks away from retiring. So uh, condolences out to his family, and uh, we want to Say thank
1: you to everyone who's listening, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, thank you for listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.